1: Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant, and I'm speaking to you live from Columbia, Missouri at the Unbound Book Festival. Normally, my, ho- my co-host Sugi Gane would say something here, but she's doing another event at the Unbound Book Festival. So she can't be with us. Um, plus, I'm the guy who talks about Kansas City all the time, and I talk about it because it's a fascinating and amazing and complicated city. And we're going to talk about Kansas City for this podcast and this panel. Um, and right now, for unfortunate and tragic reasons, Kansas City is in the middle of the national news, which has adjusted our subject somewhat. Um, so, I'm, But I'm lucky to have three Kansas City-based writers here to talk to me about the city, its literature, and current events, including the tragic shooting of Ralph Yarl and the recent vote by the Missouri House to defund all libraries. Woo-hoo. I'm sure everyone was excited about that. We are joined by Jose Faust. Jose Faust is a Bogota, Columbia native and longtime Kansas City resident. He's a founding member of the Latino Writers Collective and the 2011 winner of the Poets and Writers Maureen Egan Writers Exchange Award. He is a board member of the Full Frame Initiative, the Board of Governors, uh, UMKC Alumni Association, and serves as president of the board of Charlotte Street. His most recent book of poetry is The Life Life and Times of Jose Calderon. Welcome, Jose.
4: Thank you for the invite.
1: We're also joined by C.J. Janovey. C.J. is Director of Content at KCUR, the city's NPR affiliate. Her book, No Place Like Home, Lessons in Activism from LGBT Kansas, won the 2019 Steuben Deak Great Plains Distinguished Book Award was a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award in LGBTQ nonfiction and was honored as a Kansas Notable Book for 2019. She also helped launch Kansas Reflector, part of the National States Newsroom network of nonprofit news outlets covering state governments, and she spent a decade as editor of the Pitch. Welcome, CJ. Thanks, Whitney. Our third panelist is Desideria Mesa. Desideria is often found getting lost in historical, sci-fi, or high fantasy novel, or crafting her own stories, of course. Aside from churning out novels, she enjoys writing songs, poetry, and short stories. Her historical fantasy debut, Bindle Punk Bruja, set in Kansas City, was published in September of 2022. Welcome. Thank you. (laughs) All right. The title of this panel is uh, Rewriting Kansas City, and I chose it because I thought each of you were, in your own ways, uh, changing and adding to the traditional ways that Kansas City has been portrayed in literature. But we have a couple of national events, as I just mentioned, that have occurred in our city that feel like examples of traditions that I think we all wish we could leave behind. Um, I'm thinking specifically of the recent terrifying shooting of Ralph Yarl and the Missouri House vote to defund libraries across the state, both of which have made national news this month. We're going to talk about both of those things, but first, I wonder if you could help define for me what you think the traditional literary view of Kansas City is. Jose, let's start with you. Who are the traditional poets of Kansas City? Is there such a thing?
4: Uh, They're kind of hiding out there somewhere. (laughs) I mean, let me, I guess, give context to that. Um, When I went to university at UMKC, um, I really was not aware of a poetic tradition in Kansas City, to be honest with you. I found it in the professors, the faculty at the uh, UMKC, uh, Dan Jaffe, uh, Bill McKinley, um, uh, Shira Chandra. Uh, over time, that kind of like moved over into other people. Michaud was always an incredible poet in Kansas City and a very much mentor for a lot of poets. Uh, David Ray, I think was, uh, at that time, was the most well-known poet associated with Kansas City. And then it went through this kind of, um, I, I guess in a way to say is the university was really important, at least for defining to me what the poetry scene was. But then there's the one very thing you notice very quickly. Kansas City is really more known for the absence of its writers. And I mean by this by saying Hemingway, we claim Hemingway. He was there only for eight months. But he did come back and I think did the first draft of uh, Across the River, what is it, uh, Into the Trees, whatever that one was, down at the meal and So I know that history. Then we always, I'd always heard about... Uh, Langston Hughes, but he was Joplin, and he was a short time there in Lawrence, he moved on. Uh, Gordon Parks was Kansas. Uh, Gwendolyn Brooks, uh, William Stafford. You know, So these were the ones that were thrown, but I, if I were to look around and say, yeah, okay, they're the hallmark, there's always this asterisk. They were there for a moment, then they left. <laughs> you know, And I think that really, in a way, sums up a, a lot for me what the poetry scene is, uh, or the writing scene as well. For me, Evan S. Connell was the first one that I really was aware of that was Kansas City, wrote about Kansas City with Mr. and Mrs. Bridge, uh, and then the poetry that he did. Um, but in terms of like a scene, it's really more to me become like these cliques that have sprung up in the absence of having that kind of literary tradition. I think about uh, some of the spoken word stuff that came along 18th, and Street, 18th Street, 18th and Vine uh, with Glenn North. Um, also some of the stuff that came up with uh, Young Bold Poets, uh, the things, the, the communities that come out of, uh, uh, West, uh, what is that, Prospero's books. And then the writer's place is, tw- you know, 25 years now plus. It really had brought a lot of writers to Kansas City and kind of gave the sense that we had a tradition. But for me, it really is, I think, now that it's beginning to happen. Uh, Hadara Barnadov, who's there, Ann Boyer, who won a Pulitzer Prize for her book, um, is teaching at the Art Institute. There's a great faculty at the Art Institute, a good one at, uh, UMK, at UMKC as well. Uh, so there's a rising, but I think it's defining itself right now, and this is where you're finding it right now in this time.
1: What about fiction, Desideria? Um Has there been a traditional fiction, fictional territory for Kansas City? Uh, Jose just mentioned Evan S. Canal. That's who I think of. Um, and if so, who are, are there other people that you would point to, or would it be Canal?
3: Honestly, when I was researching and I was trying to find books to read about Kansas City when I was writing Bindle Punk Uh Bruja, I had trouble finding content that wasn't, (laughs) well, that would come from, say, a minority perspective. Um, or just from anything that wasn't crime. (laughs) Right. Um, Because, you know, if you're looking for Kansas City, most of the things I was finding, if it was just outside of Kansas City, it was farmlands, um, Ozarks, but Kansas City-based itself, mafia, um, murder mysteries, and things like that. So I really had a hard time finding literature. So when he was talking about the absence, I really think that we don't have very much yet. I think that um, I'm glad to be a part of something um, where we have stories that need to be told from um, Hispanic community, from LGBTQ, from women perspectives, and from women authors as well.
1: I mean, that's what I thought when I was writing my first two novels, which are set in Kansas City, which was that like, Canel's the only person that anyone ever thinks of. And there's a lot of territory, particularly writing about race, which is what I was doing, Mm -hmm. that is open, you know, for people to explore. Um, what about the, uh, journalistic side of this, CJ? Well, who are the cities, if you had to over the, like the, in the 20th century, who were the city's dominant journalistic voice or voices of that period of time?
2: I'll talk about the dominant journalistic voices of the 20th century in a second, Whitney, but when I think of fiction in Kansas City, I think of your work. Oh, that's nice. (laughs) And also when I think of poets in Kansas City, I think, Jose, of the Latino Writers Collective, which is where I discovered so much of Kansas City poetry, and I- I, you know, I would invite you to take a minute to talk about the work that came out of that group. Not, not to throw us off schedule here. Oh, very
4: quickly, time me. <laughs> um, we, we were a bunch of Latinos looking for a place to read, not recognizing ourselves in the audiences we went to. We started a collective, uh, and to nobody's surprise, within the Latino community, we had so many that came up and said, "Yeah, we want to write." And I will say, we've been together as a group thirteen years, but we really have lost our momentum. It's hard to maintain a not profit, but the one good thing that happened, I would say out of 30 members, we got more than that, but we have 30 that published. And I would say there's five that actually have started really good literary careers.
2: Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. As far as as far as the defining journalistic voice in the 20th century in Kansas City, it has to be the Kansas City Star.
4: Yeah.
2: Uh, mm-hmm. Originally, the Kansas City Star and Times, which was, I would say, you know, if you think of Kansas City as its own, you know, as a literary, as a setting for writing, the Star was like a character in the city. You know, it was like this sort of big bombastic newspaper that. Uh, that thought very highly of itself and a- acted accordingly. And um, I was an intern I,
1: there. I remember that. You know,
2: Hemingway, they claimed Hemingway. Well, <laughs> they said
1: that the style, there's a lot been written about how the Kansas City Star style book influenced the way that Hemingway wrote. So there's been, that is that connection, whether whether you believe that or not.
2: I I, I think there might be a bit of hyperbole in that. <laughs> um, but, I, yeah, I mean, it's, but, but if you think of, like, sort of Kansas City getting its reputation, I think, you know, in 1972, Calvin Trillin supposedly wrote a Playboy article that, you know, started an I- infinite series of barbecue wars, you know, maybe, or... Um, <laughs> Trillin, uh, right, yeah. yes. Trillin, yeah. Yeah. He has written a lot um, about it. I
1: mean, I think Winstead's is famous because of Twil- Trillin in some ways. Bryant's is famous because of that. Don't yeah. you think? Probably yeah. Playboy. I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Um,
2: so yeah, but 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 it's a new century. We're we're a quarter into a new century, and I don't I don't think the star the star has that same uh, yeah, role I mean,
1: in the life of the city. It's totally different. That's yeah. I mean I feel like all of you are representing like new ways of thinking about what has been a really monolithic literary tradition where mostly we're talking about white cisgender men, right? But now there's gonna be a different world for Kansas City. Kansas City is much more diverse, and, and it always been diverse, but it's allowing diversity into the literature and into power in some ways. Um, anyway, so speaking of older issues, right, and, and, and an old way of thinking about race in Kansas City and, and racism, you know, most people are gonna be familiar with Ralph Yarrell's story. Uh, on April 13th, he was picking up his twin brothers and he rings the doorbell at the wrong house in North Kansas City. He's black, he's 16 years old, an 84-year-old white man, Andrew Lester, shoots him twice through a glass door. Miraculously, he survives, which I'm very thankful for, and I'm sure we all are. The shooter, Andrew Lester, is taken into custody and then pretty quickly released by the Kansas City Police Department. Four days after the shooting, local prosecutors say they haven't received a criminal referral from KCPD. Uh, and then later that day, word comes out that Lester will be charged with first-degree assault, which is basically attempted murder. How does this fit within this traditional literary framework uh, this area that you were talking about um, that we've been attempting to define?
3: Um, Sadly, (laughs) in a lot of ways. um, Just because one of the things I I recognized when I was doing my research, especially in regard to my family, um, the Mexican community, boxcar community, down by the river bottoms, for example, in the early 1900s, um, obviously, you know, race was a huge deal at that time to even be able to purchase property if your skin was darker at all. Um, and I think about that and I think about this story today with Ralph and how um, a lot of the same narratives with race, um, with women's rights, there's so many things that have not changed and that's what shocked me when I was reading, you know, the articles and the editorials in some from the Kansas City Star of what was going on at that time. Um, honestly, Um, I look at that, and it just tells me that there's so many stories that we have left to tell. Um, I really hope that we can change the scene with Kansas City stories and begin celebrating um, people's, um, you know, backgrounds and different cultures and kind of turn the tide from the stories of violence and um, really embrace, um, you know, a different narrative.
1: I mean, the reason that story became such a huge National stories because it's a, a con, it's a easily compressed version of fear of the other right? right a complete unawareness or unwillingness to admit that you live in a city that is diverse and when somebody who's not your race shows up at the door if you're a white person you are for afraid and that is the old metaphor the old paradigm for the city I think many many white people lived that way right partly because of the dominant journalistic voice of television which showed. On, national, on, on local news, murder and mayhem always east coast. If it bleeds, it leads And you, I'm sorry, always on the east side of the city, right? So you're seeing lots of crime stories in the 80s and 90s when I was growing up, right? About, oh, there's gangs on the east side. There's all this trouble, right? And so it turns out that Andrew Lester himself is listening to Fox News all the time, right? And that is sort of his own grandson said that he was radicalized by that, right? So the stories that we tell about the city Influence the way that people act. I mean, this is an obvious example of that I would say
3: I think that's what I was alluding to really um, it made me think of when I was reading this story um, I actually I know an older woman. She's uh, in her. I want to say 70s um, I was very close to her We went for a walk one day and there was a black gentleman that came toward us And she grabbed my hand and walked on the other side of the street and every time we go for a walk She would do that she'd pull me to the other side of the street She'd be in fear immediately because of how someone looked and I and she would mention news stories all the time and um that's what I'm saying is the narrative surrounding people of color in particular is always violence they're always the villain in a story or in the news and that's really I don't I can't say I know the man's mindset that committed that but I mean um I do think that has a lot to do with yeah you know culture and narratives
1: I do want to point out that in your novel, your main character is also writing for the star, so she she's <laughs> contributing to that dominant journalistic voice. Um, but she she's also line passing as wife. But
4: right? yeah. <laughs> which is yes. how
1: she got the job. Um, Can I
4: add something to that? Yeah. And I think the one thing that's really, for me, really important to realize is that traditionally it has been the Kansas City Star, has been the media, but Casey Defender, which is an orga- organized uh, very much with an agenda in terms of telling stories that aren't told. Uh, group of very idealistic journalists uh, broke the story, pushed the story. The um, through their website on IG, I remember the uh, aunt of, the, of uh, um, Ralph put an appeal, emotional appeal, and said, "Look, this happened to my son. Mm. He just got it. Hadn't been on the news at all." And it was that activism of them p- putting it up there. And the very next day, I mean, people that were following that site immediately said, we're, well, we're going to go and protest. The minute they knew where he was from, North Cookingham Road, they said, we're going to go and protest. Over 300 people showed up that day, literally at noon. And that, I think, to me, I still do believe that that is the one positive. Media is changing, and I think it's becoming localized and it's being driven very much by people who want to tell those stories and really realize they're not going to happen all the time. There's a new cycle but they can devote their time to that story, and that made it a national story.
1: I read stories about this in the Kansas City Defender to prep for this. Uh, Could you talk a little bit more about what the Kansas City Defender is? Oh,
4: God, I'd I'd hate to be the voice for them, but I do know that they are very much centered in GCJ. You might know more than I do, but uh, they're very much centered in community, talking about stories that are not the things that drive newspapers anymore you know. most stories are feel good give you the crime and then go into some other stories diverge away from that they concentrate on the stories and they follow through Mm -hmm. and now they've made some mistakes and they are one of the first organizations they were called out i think there was another instance where a guy um, went to a restaurant uh, got kicked out Uh, the cops came in and basically used his credit card to pay off the bill it turned out he kind of was manipulating the situation casey defender was behind the story and told the story said hey this guy's being discriminated against But when the minute they found out the narrative was different, they came out and very boldly said and apologized, and put their. You know, uh, that's something that has to go through an ombudsman, at another organization, and then you have to kind of go through all these different things. That to me is, I think, the critical difference. Or
1: at Fox News, you just never apologize. (laughs) Well, you never apologize. (laughs) Even
4: when you lose, you win, right? Uh, Because you don't go to trial. Nobody sees the stuff. Um, But I think that's one big difference.
2: The Defender is is uh, a media outlet run by black people for the black community, yeah. unapologetically black advocacy, and yeah. um, uh, and like Jose said, bold. bold.
1: That's an example yeah. of rewriting Kansas City. I mean, it's a yeah. really right. clear example. I'm glad you brought that up, because without that protest, I don't think this becomes a national story. It didn't. Yeah. Um, how much does... This is some local Kansas City politics for our national audience, but everyone in the, here at this audience should know what we're talking about. Um, how much does the fact that this happened north of the river in Kansas City matter. Uh, I can't think of a single novel, short story, or poem that is set north of the river, um, largely because growth in that part of the city is relatively new. Downtown Kansas mm-hmm. City is south of the river, and the downtown is built right on the river, for those who haven't been there. And then the, the main growth of the city is headed south of there for most of the 20th century. Um, but now there's a part of the city that's grown up north of the river between the, the airport and, and, and downtown, because the airport's out north of the river about a half an hour. Um, so I feel like Andrew Lester is much more likely to live north of that. He's like, the, of someone like him is much more likely to live north of the river than in my neighborhood, which is pretty racially diverse. Um, CJ, what do you have to say about that? I mean, how, how can you talk to us about the geography of this issue?
2: The north of the river is suburbs. Yeah. So, um, it's Kansas City is a very sprawling metropolitan area. It's sprawled very far in all directions. It's also, very not- notably in terms of, you know, journalism and, and fiction, it sprawled west into Kansas. There's, that's where most of the white flight happened during the 70s when, when the uh, schools were ordered to be desegregated. Uh, many of the white families uh, fled into Johnson County, Kansas, which, uh, Whitney, you've written uh, uh, one of my probably favorite books about Kansas City, The King of Kings County. Which deals with a lot of those themes as well. So it's, it's, it's suburban. It's sheltered. It's, uh, it's, um, it's its own bubble north of the river. But the north of the river is also becoming more diverse as are all of Kansas City's yeah. suburbs. But it hasn't traditionally been that Not way. Not traditionally, no.
1: Could you talk about, speaking of neighborhoods, you mentioned the boxcar neighborhood that is in your, and that you said your family lived there at, some, at one point, or you were looking into the history of that neighborhood. Could you talk a little bit about that?
3: Well, the Mexican boxcar community, first of all, I just want to say north of the river is also very boring because it, is, it hasn't yeah. been diverse. So it's just...
1: <laughs> Somebody had to say it. What kind of story are you going to write? <laughs> Um, Parkville's nice. There's some nice restaurants there. We'll write about a restaurant
3: in Parkville one day. Um, (laughs) It'll be riveting. We'll work on it. Um, (laughs) But the Mexican boxcar community was something that I did not know of, but my family had mentioned. My grandparents came um, across... from Mexico to Kansas City on trains as children. So my great-grandmother um, brought them here. And a lot of Mexican families were being brought to Kansas City to work by the old Union Depot before they built Union Station, which was is the most beautiful building in Kansas City. If you've never been there, you have to. You can't argue me on that. It's beautiful. Um, <laughs> but um, the the Mexican workers would first send the men up and they would live in abandoned boxcars. And then they would send for their families and the families would come live with them there. The problem the families would have later is even, you know, if they came with money, like my family did, um, there's, they couldn't rent out anywhere. Um, white. Landlords wouldn't rent out to Mexican families, so I found articles back um, in that time period that would just say not to rent out to Mexicans because they're dirty or they don't smell good or all these things. Um, So they had a hard time finding places to rent, and then, of course, due to title restrictions, had trouble finding places to also buy, and so had to develop their own communities. But yeah, whole families living in boxcars at that time.
1: I mean, I think we have two examples of the way of rewriting Kansas City that... uh, Jose and CJ are talking about The Defender, which is a new n- n- outlet now, but also reinspecting things from the past that we haven't written about, like this community that you write about in your book, <laughs> is a very important part of like discovering what really happened. And when I was writing about the racial covenants so that the Nichols Company used, that's a way of finding that history and making sure that it becomes public. So that, that is also part of rewriting. Another part of rewriting is I've thought a lot about, and I'm writing about this now in a book that I'm working on now, which is that we're living in an era when the leadership of the city is more diverse, right? We do have uh, a black mayor. At an earlier point in in like, I don't know, maybe five years ago we had a black chief of police and like the, the chancellor of my university was black. So we had like, and Emmanuel Cleaver, my representative, is black. So we had a lot of diversity in representation today. That the Quentin Lucas has been speaking to this event, he's been on he's been on uh, on MSNBC, and I've seen various interviews with him. We have also have a chief of police is a woman who's white, but it's the first woman in the 148 year history of that department. Right. So how does this increase diversity and leadership affect the way the city responds to a, a crisis like this. Um, Jose, I'm going to start with you.
4: Well, that's always, <laughs> if I see numbers, they don't mean a lot to me, honestly, uh, because I think it's a visual thing, it's mm-hmm. a presentation part. I can remember one time we celebrated the fact that uh, Dick Berkeley was the first Jewish mayor, um, you know, and that was kind of something. 1st don't mean that much to me anymore because I think we've had now 30 years of firsts. So what, we're uh, we gonna have a first that somebody owns a building over here on this corner and somehow that means something, you know, because nobody's ever owned that building <laughs> that wasn't uh, white, you know. Uh, no, I think what is more important for me is to see if, are the policies in fact changing? And I think Kansas City Depar- Police Department, if you wanna mention one, has a lot of issues because it's a department that's controlled by a commission appointed by the governor, uh, which, doesn't necessarily have to be Kansas City folk, and there is a big disconnect between the p- police department and the communities that it which patrols. means you
1: get a lot more conservative people on the uh, police board, board than you would if they were being picked by the mayor.
4: Right, and and I think th- and also and that's a problem across concerned. the
1: country when you're talking about yeah. police reform. This is what stops police reform.
4: Well, isn't St. Louis also I think uh, under that kind, or have they? I don't know the St. Louis model. CJ, do police. you know? Going that way. It's it's going uh, Yeah. <laughs> You wish. (laughs) But I think, for me, I think uh, there's still real tangible things, and that's when uh, voters themselves uh, reflect. It's not just about numbers. It's actually about the activism. And I think when you look around, a lot of the wealth is still in white hands. Uh, A lot of the decision-making in terms of what gets developed, uh, the sports thing, uh, there's nothing really that trickles down to the community. When you see real representation, is when you talk about housing as being more important than whether we get a new stadium, uh, whether we have adequate supplies in the schools and adequate uh, things that the schools need, the library thing that you're mentioning. When those becomes the things that the community says are more important than sports in a new building, then I think we have representation. Thank you. CJ, could you just speak to the St. Louis part? It looked like you had something you wanted to say there.
2: I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, St. Louis gained local control of its police department uh, in the last few years. Um, post uh, uh Quentin Lucas is the third black mayor yeah. for Kansas City. So, um, you know, what's been striking in, the, in this case this week is his ability to speak from his own experience to say t- – to bring up things that – that um, people need to hear right now, which is uh, it, absolutely even the pro- even the white prosecutor in Clay County says there's a racial aspect to the to Lester's shooting of Ralph Yarrell, but also Quentin Lucas can talk about the fetishization of guns and the uh, culture of fear that uh, this country lives in right now, and he can he can speak to those things in a very um, in, in a way that you can't argue with and that, Im, that resonates with people emotionally, just like I think this this shooting resonates with people so emotionally, because anyone, regardless of what race you are in Kansas City, can identify with going to the wrong house and ringing the doorbell. and um, And also, I don't think anyone who was following this incident was surprised to hear that 84-year-old uh, Andrew Lester was, uh, you know, watching a lot of Fox News, according to his grandson, not according to other relatives. So I just think, I just think, you know, and it's and it's the fact that in this country uh, we are. I think I don't remember which. Newspaper talked about this country being armed to the teeth and we're also just so afraid of each other So it's like the whole country is just on on, you know Locked and loaded with its finger on the trigger and scared and so these are feelings that that everybody I think is having regardless of where you are politically
1: Thank you. Um, Desideria, your novel, Punk Bruja, is set in what I would consider to be one of Kansas City's perennially traditional periods to write about. It's a favorite time period because it was fun here. Is the Pendergast era of jazz clubs and bootlegging. And Robert Altman made a movie about this era called Kansas City. Uh, Jay McShan, the great jazz musician, was playing here. Count Basie, Benny Moten, and later on Charlie Parker But your main character, Luna, is a Mexican-American and writes for the Kansas City Star. Mexican-American characters aren't traditionally included in the lore of Kansas City's jazz heyday. Um, Can you talk about this choice and then read to us from the book?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, we talked a little bit about the boxcar community. That was my first fascination, so I wanted to start it from there. Also, my grandfather was a musician, so I kind of got into um, Kansas City music style at that time, um, and it just kind of grew from there. So you, uh, I also you know, chose to have my main character as a lady bootlegger, which was also fun in the research, because those were very rare, but they you know we had lady Lakers, as what i call them they were actually nicknamed snake charmers which i thought was kind of nice <laughs> but so my uh, main character um, when you when you research all of that it kind of leads to everything else um, including the racism and title restrictions and the issues of the day there um, one thing my grandmother told me when i asked her why did you not pass down spanish to my father and his brothers and sisters. They, she said, because I did not want them to have an accent. Um, I remember her telling me that when I was 11 years old. And I asked her why, because at that time it didn't make any sense. And she said, well, I just wanted them to have the best chance to make it here, because with, they're already brown, they're already dark, they already have that against them um, in this society, so just, I wanted to basically Americanize, whitewash as much as possible to give them, in her view at that time, the best opportunity, so um, the reading that I'm about to do is coming off the heels of my main character um, and her brother, who is full Mexican, my main character is white passing, she has a white father, and um, they share her brother share a mother um, that is full mexican so they kind of have this tension between them and the argument that they have in the scene um, is almost verbatim some conversations i've had with my own father because i haven't walked through his shoes or seen the world through his eyes and so we've just had very different experiences Um, and so that's kind of where that picks up and this is just starting with my main character luna and she's speaking to her brother javier she says, stop treating me like I'm the enemy, Javi, I say, holding in a hiss. Then stop acting like it. My, eyes narrow, my narrowed eyes pop open. Oh, see? Don't act like you don't know exactly how many times I've had to slap a guy because I was too flustered to charm him. Fine, but don't act like you know what it's like for me. Don't act like you know what it's like for me. A plate of steaming tortillas bangs against the table, our mother's mouth tight with warning. My brother and I share a silent glare as we take our seats across from each other, bitterness creeping up my neck and across my tongue. It's not a new argument. It's certainly hitting harder than usual right now, our relationship straining like the days we're apart. As the colorful glass bowls make their way around the table, I force my back straight and shoulders square. I won't let Javier's words get to me. He's just tired, the worn look in his eyes betraying his youth, only three years older than me. His life hasn't been easy, being brought to a strange strange country from his home in Mexico as a young boy, his father dying on the journey, being Mexican in America, period. I, at least, was born here, my immigrant blood mingling with the blood of an upper-class gentleman who refuses to acknowledge me but it's those very features that were passed on to me that allow me the privilege that Javier resents. My mother said it was a gift, my chestnut brown hair and blue eyes with a body and skin like Clara Bow, and the men at the gin mill tell me the same thing, but for different reasons. I rather like the comparison, a famous flapper, the it girl who broke out of poverty and brought sexiness to the moving pictures and slapped her boss for trying to kiss her. Labeled as a husband stealer and a rebel against social norms, she's become my hero.
1: Thank you. <laughs> Jose, you're originally from Bogota, uh, and you moved to Kansas when you were nine in 1965, which means you've been living around here longer than I have. Um, you're a longtime Kansas Cityan now, and your murals can be found all over the city. Um, and I think a lot about <coughs> the importance of immigration as part of Kansas City's story, um, not just people from Columbia like you are, but from... Croatia, you know, there's a strawberry hill in Kansas City, Kansas, there's mm-hmm. uh, a neighborhood like that, or there's lots of Irish immigrants. So, and I don't feel like I know, or I ha- can't think of very many novels that are about the immigrant experience in Kansas City, although your poetry does touch on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I wondered if you could talk about that part of the Kansas City experience and how well it's been represented in literature, and then read us a poem. Uh,
4: yeah. You know, I'll tell you, it's you hear that statement everybody's an immigrant <laughs> even those that were forced to come here in some way have immigrated or, uh, there's a lot of truth to that and i think for me the most important i'm a i speak um i'm the kansas speakers bureau and one of the things that i do for humanities kansas i, I tell an immigrant story i tell my story through the lens of art uh the experience that Sarah made about uh, not speaking the spanish that was my experience my mother refused to speak spanish to us the minute we arrived here in the house uh and forced us because she had a horrible accent. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, you know, it, w- it would great. but later it sounds like music. But now she wants to speak to me in English and criticize me to no end because I don't speak that perfect Spanish anymore. Um, <laughs> but so I think that's one of the experiences. The other part, too, was that when we came to this country, uh, we were not really aware that we were all that different, right, so one of the first things my friend uh, Shanath Karatza mentions in a poem she wrote, but one of the first things I my first experience was my stepfather turning around, looking at me in the car when we were driving up from Miami in 1965 through the south and telling me that, you know, there will be people in this country who will not like you or judge you by the color of your skin. And it was the first time I was aware I was a color. And I come from a very multicultural family, so I did not understand that uh, context of color. Um, The other thing, too, that over years I have found out, um, even the country is not aware sometimes of the rich diversity that exists in Kansas City and even the people within the city. I am always amazed how many people, Latinos, will come to Kansas City, passing through, whether they're authors, whether they're celebrities of some kind, <coughs> um, and they'll go, man, I was not aware that you have so many Latinos here. Well, we make up about 10%, 15%, about 200,000 Latinos. I uh, Also, I happen to work in the Northeast, and I have my studio's in downtown Kansas City, Kansas. I've worked between those two communities. You can go to a, a, a clinic, health clinic, uh, called cabot in the northeast where they basically have interpreters to accommodate 33 different languages it's a very rich and you mentioned the the immigrants that are coming in you have syrian you have uh, uh afghanis you have uh mong you have uh, uh, burmese you have a lot of people that come in Nor- the northeast has traditionally been the gateway
1: large vietnamese population oh huge
4: vietnamese and cuban at one time when we first moved to the west side there were a lot of cubans They've since moved down to the Columbus Park area or out to the suburbs. Uh, so it's a very rich tapestry, I think. And um, I wrote a poem for a friend of mine who wanted me to capture his immigrant experience. The funny thing was he was Belgian. <laughs> 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 and his parents came here at the same time as a lot of uh, the Mexicans came in 1910. But they were running the conflict that would envelop uh, Sarajevo, between would be the... Uh, the start of uh, World War One. That They were running from that. So the stories are there to be told, honestly, and shared. Do you want me to read? Yeah, if you could read that poem, that would be great. Yeah. So this is one where I basically talk about that idea of the... The
1: cops are coming to take us away from the reading. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so hurry it's up. called um,
4: A Family Portrait. Mi familia stands facing the camera from mi abuela to mi prima Leonor and tío Guillermo to mi tía Emerita. Framing the line that hugs close to the wall, us kids are entwined and woven into the legs, elbows, and waist of assorted other tias and teals. We are varying shades and tints, pink flushed cheeks next to olive brown arms, questioning ebony eyes beneath jet black curls, deep brown folds embracing plump peach cheeks. A bashful white face beneath golden braid grins at me, primo Raphael's twisted face as he succeeds in spoiling the decorum of the family portrait. Then the stern look of mi abuelita as she eyes the children that any moment threaten to spill across the polished floor like a stew about to overflow the boiling pot, as if with one look she can hold us back in the container, in the very pan that has stirred our different flavors, into this mix of savory, creole, mestizo, more, from the sands of Arabia and the broad bent stretch of Africa, and the spreading tubers of Andaluz like Extremadura, in Catalunya, in the indigenous migrants from the north, in the bridge to the ancestral land, to the mother, to the patria, to the folds of the rift valley. We simmer and the bubbles subside for an instant until the hand with the camera gives a thumbs up. And then this stew spills across the floor, to the door, to the streets, to the city, to the hills, to the sea, to the discomfort of those who fail to see the varying tones and tints of our rapidly growing family. And I would add that that poem was inspired by a photo that my mother gave me many years ago, in which showed that panoply. We're standing with my grandmother, we're at an airport, we're saying goodbye to somebody, and I saw how dark my cousin Rafael was, and I saw how white my uh, cousin Patricia was. Um, And in that moment, all that idea of color just seemed so ridiculous to me.
1: Thank Thank you. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. Last year, uh, Missouri passed a law banning explicit sexual material in school libraries. We've done a, some podcasts on so this. You want to look back in our ar- archives with Garth Green- Greenwell and Farah Jasmine Griffin on the subject of book bans like this in other places like Florida. In those episodes, we've, like, I think it's really easy to connect the banning of books with, for quote unquote explicit content to really wanting to, as a cover for banning books by LGBTQ writers or writers of color. Um, CJ, I was wondering if you've been following this case, and is that what's happening here with the Missouri school book ban?
2: I think what's happening all over the country with uh, these attempted book bans and uh, uh, attempts to legislate what can be taught in schools, I think what's going on is fascism and um
1: we've done a lot of episodes about that too (laughs) having
2: had some time to think about this um you know when i was reporting for my book um you know lgbtq people in kansas told me over and over again and i know it's it's not just unique to kansas but uh when they needed to figure out what was going on with them when they needed to learn who they were they went to libraries Mm -hmm. and so um you know efforts to to control information mm-hmm. that will help people, yeah, and that will uh, uh, maybe give people uh, information separate from what a very small group of powerful people want the rest of us to know. You attack libraries, and uh, you know, I because I did have some time to think about this. I, I uh, you know, googled a little bit, and I found copy of a talk that Toni Morrison gave in 1995 to Howard University uh, titled Racism and Fascism, and there's 10, ten things that she uh, that she noted, which I won't read all of them because it'll take a while, but, um, you know, number one, construct an internal enemy as both focus and division. Number two, isolate and demonize that enemy by unleashing and protecting the utterance of overt and coded name-calling and verbal abuse, employ ad hominem attacks as legitimate charges against the enemy, enlist and create sources and distributors of information who are willing to reinforce the demonizing process because it's profitable, because it grants power, and because it works. She goes on and on like this, and she's talking about exactly what's going on in state legislatures right now about uh, LGBTQ people and people of color.
1: The sad thing about that for me is that uh, you know your book, which also uh, recounts moments of hope and like possibility that we, we your that your community was feeling seven or eight years ago, right? It feels like significantly worse now. Um, and so I wanted to talk to you just a little. I mean, I want to make clear to make the connections here. The reason that the books are that the library funding has been cut in the Missouri state legislature was that the. Uh, Public universities public libraries in Missouri with the ACLU are suing to stop this law from going into effect about banning the books in school libraries And so the legislators are mad. And so they get will take away all the funding for libraries. Ha, right? Um, And in addition to that sort of silencing that you're talking about um, This month the Kansas legislature banned transgender girls from playing in women's sports overriding a veto by Democratic governor Laura Kelly Uh, They're also Missouri has recently banned surgeries associated with gender. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about that and then read a section from from your book, um, No Place Like Home.
2: Again, this is part of a national movement. This is, you know, similar laws are being made all over the country. This is not unique to what's happening in Kansas and Missouri. It's part of a national movement to make make people afraid uh, to demonize a very vulnerable group of people that a lot of people don't, Know much about or understand, so very, very I, heard
1: a, I heard a statistic on, on the radio recently that, like, maybe there might be one transgender student that this law in Kansas would apply to out of 100,000 students. Maybe three. Maybe three. So, um, so the two of them were graduating, was what I heard, so it wasn't gonna affect.
0: I, mean, I
2: want to also emphasize that we're talking about laws uh, that affect children, so children K through 12. Participation in sports is the is the law that's really you know uh, gaining the most traction. What we're also talking about talking about laws to um, criminalize doctors for providing health care to trans children, and um, the the purpose of these efforts, I think, is to uh, make just make people scared of what they don't know, keep a certain political base riled up enough to keep putting the same people in power. And these people are actually, I don't think, represent the majority views, certainly. um, When I was researching my book, I I started out to try to um, tell the story of a, a massive change in public opinion that took place between 2005 when Missouri and K- Kansas, and that's in the mid2000s, states all around the country banned gay marriage. They held uh, statewide referendums, usually anywhere between 70 to 80 percent of the voters in those states banned gay marriage. Um, Ten years later, 2015, the US Supreme Court legalizes gay marriage. By then, 55% of Americans are completely fine with gay marriage. So this is a profound change in public opinion over just 10 years. I had a few ideas about how that had happened, and I thought Kansas was a great place to try to tell that story because it's right in the middle of the country. It's not on the coast. It's not San Francisco or New York City with big you know, gay populations. It's... Um, it's also home of the Westboro Baptist Church, if you know the you know the sort of God hates fags signs that became a, an international export from uh, Topeka, Kansas. And it's also a place that everyone around the whole world thinks they know because of this stupid movie from 1939. Everyone thinks they know Kansas. And so I thought this would be a rich, <laughs> rich territory. So in the case of reporting this book, um, one thing i found in the last two chapters are profiles of trans women because w- what i discovered in 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 this time frame that i was writing about which is really 2011 to 2014 2015 there were uh, there are at least two transgender women who were in leadership positions in the inequality kansas which is the lgbtq advocacy organization in kansas so if you think about Caitlyn Jenner is on the cover of Vanity Fair in 2015, and we had t- trans women in Kansas who were on TV, on the steps of the state capitol rallying, on the news, in the newspapers, well before Caitlyn Jenner. Or anyone had heard of Caitlyn Jenner? So Kansas was sort of a leader in this regard. And um, the uh, the passage that I'm going to read has to do with with this this conversation about introducing people to members of their community who are trans. This is in Manhattan, Kansas, where there's sort of a um, a trans visibility project that involves uh, art portraits, like a photo booth thing. And and, uh, one of the people who participated in this is a a guy named Adam O'Brien. And uh, I'll start here. Adam is a a student at, at at K-State, so, um, so, and I've, I've been talking about uh, some, some effort, at this point I've been talking about a community college in, in, outside Wichita where there's also a trans faculty member, so on another campus halfway across the state, another trans man had also made an impression on a billboard in Manhattan a full year before Caitlin Jenner spent a month on the cover of Vanity Fair. Quote, I'm an art student at Kansas State University and an avid tattoo designer. I'm an older brother, a best friend, and a full-on nerd. I am a transgender man. I am am Manhattan, said the text accompanying a photo of Adam O'Brien, an adorably handsome young guy with messy dark hair, sky blue eyes, and deep dimples, framing a smile that does his dentist proud. O'Brien had posed for a picture in L. Boatman's The Face of Trans photo booth at Stephanie Mott's first trans-Kansas conference in Lawrence. A few months later, L. Boatman called. She had been talking with the Flint Hills Human Rights Project, which is now chaired by a Kansas State University biology professor named Michael Herman, and and the group had the resources to put one of these images on a billboard for a month. Would Adam O'Brien be willing? I was like, um, well, that would be good, remembered O'Brien, who was finishing his senior year as a fine arts major at the time. I'm always happy to educate people. The Flint Hills Human Rights Project unveiled the image during a small gala at an Aggieville art gallery. That was when reality set in, O'Brien said, My face is going to be on a billboard, 40 feet long, right by the highway. I'll be outing myself to my entire city. That night, people kept telling him how brave he was. Nerve-wracked, O'Brien shook off the feeling and focused on school. It was the last few weeks of his final semester, and he had projects out the wazoo. But he couldn't avoid the inevitable for long. He was sitting in class when a friend texted, I just saw your billboard it was on highway 177 just across the kansas river east of downtown
1: thank you it is amazing to me like i don't think that would be possible today like i feel like we've gone backwards since the moment that you wrote that and since you wrote the book and I just want to say, of the panelists, I appreciate that you've mentioned my work, but I, I think all of you are doing such important work rewriting the, 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 the literature of our city. And so, all of, the, all of these books that, that, uh, that the panelists have read, I hope you have read from. I hope you go buy because that is why they write the books. To be honest, uh, well, it's not the only reason, but it is a very <laughs> important part of allowing them to write more books. And they're very important and beautiful pieces of journalism, poetry, and fiction. Uh, thank you very much, all of, the, all of you in the audience. I don't want to thank uh, Jose Faust, Desideria Mesa, and C.J. Janovey for joining us here in Columbia. And, m- and most of all, many thanks to the Unbound Book Festival. Thank you.
0: That's it for the
2: Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Rachel Layton. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. And please, go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at Pod, on Twitter at Talk and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of this interview at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel, and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!